You're listening to the 1208-Bit Nerd Church Podcast. Join us on Discord. covered together because we have spent the day in the uh the Tolkien society's first symposium of the year and it was a lot of fun and a lot of different topics were on the table and i don't really know which way this is going to go whether we're going to move session by session or just talk about our favorite moments which will likely give way to just lots of different moments but i thought we'd start with this one because i think this is always an interesting question when it comes to obscure topics like this first off how do you think tolkien would have felt (laughs) had he known that many decades later people would be getting together to talk about his life and his work in such a like fandom almost like would you be creeped out or would you be touched or what I, I'm just curious because I always wonder like if Jamin died and like a hundred years later they're like let's talk about Jamin's life in the in the deep details that we don't have so let's let's start there go ahead Alec uh I don't know he strike he strikes me as the kind of guy that like would critique very heavily his cultish following almost <laughs> like. I don't know. He, I, I think he's made similar comments before in his letters and how like his fans respond to his works. Uh, and I mean, for Pete's sake, pilgrimages towards his grave is one of the <laughs> one of the topics. I I think he would have appreciated it from afar, but would have heavily critiqued the I don't know the cult following as a whole and how deep they are into his works. Yeah, I 100% agree with that, Alec. I think that people would have uh, been like, I think Tolkien would have responded to the people, I should say, as almost in kind of a a shock, like, uh, I'm glad you guys like this stuff. Um, That's cool. That's great. But uh, maybe maybe just leave my gravesite alone. (laughs) It was kind of for my wife and I. Uh, Also, though, maybe... Like, maybe, like, don't worship this. Like, it's cool that you all meet together. I think that's fine. But, like, why are, why are some of you, like, so hardcore? <laughs> it's a book, man. Just enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. Well, that's part of the reason I thought we'd start there is because, like, I, I'm – what today we saw with Tolkien, I'm very much that with C.S. Lewis – and based on my readings of C.S. Lewis, I feel like if he knew that we were having these Lewis symposiums and whatnot, he'd be like, what is wrong with you guys? <laughs> like, I'm just a person. I just wrote books and you're all making it weird. So anyways, I was just curious starting off how we felt about that. But at the same time, you know, I think if we're coming with balance, A, we're not here to worship, but we are here to like, you know, discuss our fandom and try to pull out some some more learnings around it. I think that makes for a good conversation. So... Let's go ahead and do that. So I tried to wake up at 7 o'clock and start it, but I was a little behind. The first session was on artists from Middle Earth. Um, I saw some of the pictures, but I, I wasn't. I was too groggy to catch on to what we were talking about. Second one, though, I don't know if any of you caught the uh, 
uh, Middle Earth Shadow of Shadow of War session. Yeah, I got the tail end of it. I, I was barely getting out. I unfortunately point. was getting the kids out the door, and I missed some of this, but I wanted to catch more of it. I'm also playing the games right now, so I really wanted to catch it so I could like process what they were talking about. So I unfortunately wasn't able to follow a lot with it because I don't know the whole story yet, as I'm like one third of the way through the first game. But as I've been playing the game, some of the things that stuck out to me so far is like, first off, is just so violent. And <laughs> as Tolkien had been a part of the war, you know, like violence is going to come up in his stories, of course. But like, I imagine to some extent, like violence was not like something that he cherished having seen it firsthand and, and was probably disturbed by it to some extent. This game almost seems to glorify it. So um I, I wondered how much of a disservice it does to Tolkien in that aspect. Like, why are you running around just murdering all these orcs in such violent ways in these video games? So, uh, any well, comment on that? Sorry, go ahead. That's because orcs aren't real, Jamin. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, some, what'd you, what were you going to say? say? I feel like some people at today's uh, symposium might disagree with you. No, yeah, uh, uh, but I think that I think I agree that like if I was looking at it from perspective of like how Tolkien would probably respond to something like that is probably this doesn't fit with the way I was writing my books at all. Um, yeah. But I also think that he didn't have necessarily a disrespect for the like popular culture of that uh like of the popular culture of like his time like he didn't hate it he would criticize it for sure and i think he would this game just as well but i i think that there's the the video game aspect like violence is in every video game and uh unfortunately um just as it is almost in every story that we've told since you know homer right uh because it's a part of uh, our stories that we tell because it's a part of our lives that we live. We see violence every day. We see these things happen. Um, and it's not necessarily a telling of this should be the perfect way you handle everything, uh, especially in video games where you're, where you're playing as like this hero um, or as you've kind of used the reference before, the pastor with like a machine guns kind of analogy. Like that's how it, you, it's honestly how the, the like a, a protagonist in most stories is kind of told as I'm this person with perfect, uh, a perfect moral compass and I dictate like who's allowed to live and who's allowed to die. But when I kill, no one feels bad about it because uh, I'm, I'm such a morally perfect person. And obviously in life, that's not a real thing. Um, yeah. Right. And like, I, with, and with I think humans, not Jesus, but like us humans and he doesn't kill people. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think there's these moments in the game that shine through the violence and darkness from time to time where like, it's focused on the elf who had actually made the ring of power. And there's moments where he's like, look, Sauron will use evil to all its ends. And if we, we need to be sure that we're not playing a part in all of his violence so, or we're not just living out what he wants us to do along the way of doing everything we're doing. He even says at one point, like your main character is just focused on revenge. And he's like, revenge only ensures that the bitterness goes on forever, you know? And like, it's weird because it doesn't match the game. Cause the game is all about just like all this incredible violence, 
but at least there's some dialogue written in that's like this or don't you realize you're just perpetuating the hand of Sauron while you do this? And I felt like the person in the session try to draw light to that. Like there's one point where your main character is in front of all of the orcs. You're in charge of them now. They're your kingdom. And you start talking in such a way where I felt like she was trying to say like, isn't this just Sauron now leading orcs in a man's body, you know? And, and I, again, I missed some of this session, but I felt like, I felt like uh, that was the direction she was going. Could be wrong. Uh, Alec caught the tail end, and he looked like he was going to say something, so maybe he has something on that. I was going to say, as far as, far as the violence goes, um, paraphrasing Faramir in the books, he says something along the lines of, uh, I love not the sword or the arrow, but that which it defends, whereas these video games are all about the sword yeah. and what it can do. Uh, mm -hmm. And sort of, Tolkien was big on what the word power meant, so, uh, subduing manipulating the power to conquer and that's kind of something that you what it seems you do uh in those games is you're conquering the orcs you're using that fancy sword of yours uh one thing that i i appreciate it but i think they fell short with the games is trying to make the orcs something that you can almost relate to more or empathize with a bit more i the tale that i caught talked about like viewing the orcs in a different light um so I, I kind of appreciate them trying to go a certain direction with the orcs which is something that tolkien himself i believe he regretted was not really giving them any redemptive value whatsoever so it looks like the game tried to do that but i don't think it fit what tolkien would have developed at all concerning the orcs uh uh he had a very very distinct definition of evil um and I think the games kind of breached that through the orcs and through Shelob. She talked about how Shelob was in some sense good when, no, no, the canonical <laughs> Shelob is literally just a purely evil, hungry spider. There's nothing deeper than that. Just an evil, hungry spider, not some sort of secret ally. Yeah, Shelob that works for good. is almost like a Lovecraftian kind of horror in that almost, sense. Almost, yeah. Yeah. So, like, when, when I hear that, like, there's like, oh, we we can see like the good and good and Shelob like kind of a thing. I'm like, ah. well, did, did she say that or was she saying? Similar. Did she say that or did she say the game tried to make it seem that way? I think she said the game tried to make yeah. it seem that way. That yeah, 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 yeah. And so that yeah, that would throw it off. And this comes back a little bit. We've talked about this on the Discord channel, which if you're listening to this podcast, you can join that anytime. Chat with us there. Um, but we talked about like respecting the rules of the universe you've painted, you know, like for example, a biblical demon is different from like an anime demon or a demon in different kinds of universes that people create, you know? Uh, and so like if, if the orcs were created just to be pure evil, like the whole way through it, you would expect like the narrative to risk to, followed that and i i don't know because i'm i'm reading through tolkien right now so i'm i'm not sure but if the game was like trying to add in, in so so like shelob if she's supposed to be evil that doesn't fit your universe when the games are like we're just gonna tweak this if anything 
that not only disrespects the universe, but confuses the morality and the theology of the universe, right? So yeah. mm-hmm. there's, there's the being respectful of the universe as you create. Otherwise, you create something that is disrespectful in many other ways. So, Yeah, I, I think that especially when it comes to like video games, we start relating all of these different games and all of these different types of uh, media. We've been talking about this a lot in the, dis- the Discord server uh, for Nerd Church, and that's kind of like um, when media starts to use words or similar phrases um, that we're used to uh, in like Christianese, I guess. Um, so like when you're talking about like anime demons, right? Uh, well, anime is just a, a general term for a large group of, of entertainment, right? Um, so there's no anime demon. There's no demon that is one demon that is the anime demon. It is, um, you, you're might be, you might be talking about what, uh, uh, someone from Japan might view as a, as a, as a demon, um, but that's not always going to be what the author of a specific um, show or manga um, is trying to represent as a demon. Um, whether it's an oni, which is like the the evil corrupted spirit, um, or if it's like a demon of like Western idea ideals coming from um coming from the basis in giant lore and their death which we have another podcast on um all about that kind of stuff um and and uh how giants were made and all that kind of stuff so uh how that western ideal of how it kind of moved through history when we start to take those words and they become kind of mixed i think that's where we start seeing a lot of the problems because uh it's not just the word that gets mixed it's the the ideas that start to get mixed too like sheila being this character with like grayness that's not a thing in Tolkien's world like moral grayness is <laughs> is is not something that he wrestled with at all and he wasn't intentionally trying to he's not saying like well there could be good in these bad people he's saying like no these people have fully chosen to do evil things these people are fully corrupted and need to be stopped um to where that's that's totally different right from uh, what the what the video game that you're talking about uh, is is portraying? Um, these are very morally gray characters, and is that necessarily wrong? I don't I don't necessarily know. I, I think we have to know the difference between a morally gray story that's being told based off of the stories that were told by a man who wrote a, wrote a story that has no moral grayness. Um, being brought into a world where moral grayness is something we have to talk about in every single movie that comes out um, in every single book that we read, because that's a part of what our culture is currently questioning. What, what are, what makes somebody bad? What makes them evil? Um, can they be redeemed from those small things as well? Is it a larger thing that's happened in their past? Are they not really evil? And we're the ones that are evil. You know, these kinds of questions always uh, are what, our culture is dealing with right now um, to where his culture was saying like there were Nazis. Those weren't nice guys. There were the, the people that came before the Nazis that were also from that area of the world that had very similar beliefs to the Nazis. Those guys were not, were not in any way doing good. 
that's a totally different time time it's a totally different place it's a totally different um ideal that they're trying to work against and so i i think that we have to remember that going into these video games um they're coming from a different perspective and cultural idea of what they're trying to tell a story of um so even if it does change the characters and even if it doesn't represent what tolkien might have uh had an idea for originally I still really respect the the creativity and the stories that are brought out of these characters, um, how they've come. Do I agree with all of it? No, I, I don't think that Shelob should be a morally gray character. Um, that just that doesn't make any sense to me, um, character-wise, culturally, um, morality-wise. Uh, but the orcs having personalities, I like that more. Um, hmm. Does it work in Tolkien's universe? No. But does it work in a the story that they've created? I think it works a little bit better than than most. And I think hopping off some you were saying there at the end is uh, you know creativity within the universe. Let's let's hop uh, into there was a segment um, Peter Jackson's Fantasia, a modern myth, which was more or less about Peter Jackson takes a movie and then he changes some elements, but he keeps it you know, it, to his best attempt to honor the story. Um, and I just thought that was one of the better sessions of the day. The speaker did yeah. a really good job at, cause you know, you expect with fandom, like, don't you touch my story. Don't you change things out. I'll, I'll kill you. You know, like that's how fans often can be about like, especially in movie adaptations to book. Uh, um, but in this particular case, uh, the speaker was saying like, you know, um, he's taking his own life and then kind of living into Lord of the Rings as his own Fantasia of sorts and, and allowing it to take life based on his own thinking, his own life, his own world, and uh, giving it in many ways a, a new light because of that. And I think one of the powerful things that comes out of that um, is what she spent a lot of time talking about is kind of like the feminism in the movies as compared to the books. You get these really awesome characters. Like this sounds ridiculous. I have this weird thing in Narnia. Whenever Aslan shows up, I cry when, for whatever reason in Lord of the Rings, like when Galadriel or Gandalf show up, like, I just want to start crying. <laughs> like, and it's part of the reason with Galadriel is like, she just, the way that they, They've set her up in the movies is just such a um, cool depiction of, of a, a strong woman who has to deal with difficulty and pain. Like when she's offered the ring, and this is what I love. She said in the cartoon, she's offered the ring, and their feminism is just so strong. She's like, oh, I don't need the ring, you know. Whereas in the movie, like her strength comes in that moment of weakness too, where she's like. Instead of a dark lord, you would have a, an evil queen, you know, and, and she starts, like, looking evil in that moment. Yeah, and it starts, like, freaking you out. And then she comes out of that, and you saw the weakness, but you see the real strength coming out of that. So, whereas uh, one form of the cartoon kind of paints her in, like, superior... Uh, unable to be affected by anything. This other one deals with the pain, even in the hobbits, which I know not everyone's into, but there's a scene where she rescues Gandalf, picks him up kind of like he's on strings very awkwardly and then walks him around. But when she puts him down, like she looks like she's 
about to die. Like everyone's coming at her. And then suddenly out of nowhere, she just gets this burst of final energy to, to send the demon Nazgul back to whence they came, you know? Uh, and it's just, uh, it's, I love the ways in which Jackson was able to work with uh, his character. I think what she said that really stuck out is like Frodo. Frodo is a hobbit. He's at the bottom of the social chain mm-hmm. in some ways. And yet he becomes the hero in many ways or him and Sam, you know, they're empowered for this journey where you don't expect it. Jackson does the same thing with women where some people in their narratives, including maybe Tolkien's have belittled or not made many women characters. Jackson puts them in the light of the Hobbit. They might seem to be where you're not expecting them to do anything, but suddenly they rise up and do, do crazy things. So, uh, Alec, you looked like you were going to say something. Yeah. Um, so, we talked a bit about this before starting the podcast um, on Tolkien writing women. Uh, and he didn't... Uh, people will criticize him on how he writes women. It's not that he wrote negatively about them. He uh, he wrote in a letter, I think, or was recorded as saying he didn't know how to write them. So I think, uh, and the speaker uh, for that segment, Elise, she said that the book... And the cartoon did a disservice to Galadriel, having her like you know chuckle mm-hmm. after the whole She's thing. Whereas Jackson Tom was giving Bombardier. Galadriel great service uh, to having her like you know show a real genuine struggle. Uh, and it, in the greater context of who Galadriel is, uh, it, it it makes sense to me to have her act that way. That Jackson had her yeah uh, do because Galadriel, Galadriel is a mighty mm-hmm. like. She is she is far mightier than like what you than the glimpse that you get in just the trilogy, um, and so that's something that I really appreciate about Jackson is that, uh, like we said, it, he does a great service to the women of it, um, of of the story, almost as though like I mentioned, if Tolkien knew how to write women, uh, you know, were a part of the modern age, he would have a better understanding of. I, I feel like he would sort of emulate those decisions that Jackson made. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I was actually, since you brought up like writing women in books and everything, uh, I think it'd be great to bring up the fact that like one of my favorite series right now outside of Lord of the Rings, just to take a quick break from it, is uh, Mistborn uh, by Brandon Sanderson. So the reason why I bring that up, though, is because he didn't, his main, main character is a woman. Um, he didn't write her, though. He had a woman come in. Um, that does like study psychology for women and stuff like that and helped him to write the character's thoughts and emotions and feelings during situations because he understood that he couldn't experience what it felt like to be a woman in these scenarios. Mm -hmm. And I I think that uh, having like read that and knowing that he he did that for his own book, uh, Brandon Sanderson did that for his book, I kind of want to see what it would have been like for maybe not even if Peter Jackson had written these women, but if he had more women actually like putting their time into into uh, this kind of cinema, because um, we saw it a little bit in Wonder Woman, right? Um, when a woman got to direct um, how a female would be reacting to situations, um, I think that's why the the first Wonder Woman was just had such a great like um, connection with audiences. Is we finally got to see a woman 
responding as a woman <laughs> to uh, to things going on and not responding what a man thought a woman would do um, in that situation. So uh, like in the same way you're saying, I really respect uh, Peter in that moment, that Galadriel scene is one of my favorites and most memorable of the entire trilogy. Uh, so I, I think that he did a fantastic job with women. I agree in his, uh, his interpretation. And I agree with that, that seminar. Um, I really love the part where she alludes to like women and water and like the, um, the, how she viewed like Galadriel as like a, a, a sea, a sea fury. Um, or a sea witch uh, during that scene. It's the shadow, uh, the doppelganger, um, which is call coming from the ring cycle um, that Tolkien had actually based uh, the original like ideas for the one ring off of. So it, it just kind of made a full circle for me. Like, Oh yeah. Like uh, the sea witch is coming in here. The, the, the idea of like the shadow for her is a watery creature. One of the, like, the abyss, one of the the unknown of this watery depth um, comes out and her hair kind of does that like wavy like length and yeah, no, it was so cool and so good, such good acting, such good direction there and I think that that scene um, is how I view it. Even if the book writes it different, I will forever read it as the way Peter Jackson directed it. And just to rewind, there was, you know, they mentioned that the script writer that for uh jackson was yep. a woman so like that's part of the reason that i think she was guessing that that helped probably make some of these characters or maybe she said that in her research they saw that this person was helping write in those characters so yeah. so you that's do good. get that as well uh sorry go ahead Alec. i was gonna say i had never I've heard the word Fantasia before, but not in this context. So I, I kind of like that she introduced the concept of Fantasia because I feel like it, you know, Jackson, t to a great extent, held true to the canon of Tolkien uh, while sort of, again, giving service to uh, the, the, like, the demographics of today. So I think, I don't know, I think it was a good introduction to the concept of Fantasia, and I feel like we could take older... Uh, forms of literature or whatever that people would now critique for its lack of uh for its sexism for whatever problematic content that it has i feel like it, those things could be fantasia-ified into a more edifying uh introduction of that of that piece that'd be cool to see yeah 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 i think if i think if more movies were considered that kind of literature genre it'd be easier to stomach them, you know, rather than yeah. like, Oh, it's going to do the book such a disservice. Cause like there are some other things I've seen that almost just go multi-universe and it somehow really works out. Like the walking dead TV show is literally in some cases completely backwards from the comics and yet just as enticing. And it doesn't make me as a like comic reader mad and it's very strange. So there's, there's weird moments like that where, and that I think you can tell like they're doing, they understand their universe well enough to be able to play with it and you can trust them. So um, there was uh, we'll go back to, we were just moving down the list. We hopped ahead, but uh, in the darkness, bind them, which was an introduction to Tolkien's speculative realism. Did anyone catch that one? Cause I haven't read HG well, so I didn't understand much of that. And I just was out of the loop with a lot of the terms he was using in general. So it wasn't up my I was alley. <laughs> I was listening, but I didn't get it. 
<laughs> I was watching it. But I so I have for everything I have like four like sentences of notes for this one. I have like a paragraph. I still do not really understand what that <laughs> segment was all about, but I have a general idea. And so I was actually kind of excited to talk about that one. Uh, do it, because you're the one who understood it then, because I, I was struggling. <laughs> okay, um, I'm just going to throw, I'm not going to try to make a case for anything here. I'm just going to throw out the ideas that I think I got, and maybe we can trudge through them together. Um, so from what I got from it is it, it took the word darkness. To me, it was, a, it, was a, it was a segment on sort of the language surrounding the word darkness. Uh, and that, you know, analyzing darkness, whether it be in Tolkien or in religion, in Christianity, or in other uh, works of literature, darkness is not necessarily the same thing across those pieces, nor is it exclusively a bad thing. Um, so, uh, for example, an example of it being a bad thing is Lovecraft. Darkness is sort of the gap between, I think they said the gap between reality and the uh, human's ability to use a language to describe it. So in Lovecraft, the indescribability of something, the lack of being able to use a language for something is what creates it horrifying and uh, is not necessarily inherently evil, but from a human perception, they would uh, label it as evil. Whereas in, in Tolkien, he, uh, where is it? I think I have the passage saved. Tolkien, darkness is kind of the, if we're sticking with imperceptibility, so in Lovecraft, not being able to perceive equals scary and evil. But in Tolkien, the imperceptibility of something is not necessarily bad. And so the passage that they have, it's in Return of the King, Many Partings, uh, where Gandalf and the elves, say Gandalf, Caliborn, and Galadriel are sort of going off to talk about things. Uh, and it says, is da, da, da. so they're talking if any wanderer had chanced to pass little would he have seen or heard and it would have seemed to him only that he saw gray figures carved in stone memorials of forgotten things now lost in unpeopled lands for they did not move or speak with mouth looking from mind to mind and only their shining eyes stirred and kindled as their thoughts went to and fro so that is the language there is almost lovecraftian and that it's what the heck is going on nobody could humanly perceive what is taking place there between a wizard angel and these two terribly ancient elves but it's not a it's not a terrifying thing to behold it's almost there's something good happening there but it's imperceivable in the same way that lovecraft's evil monsters are imperceivable so that's what i got from it is that the darkness the concept of darkness as far as literature and storytelling is a matter of language it's not necessarily good or bad thing uh what to do with that i have no idea um so yeah and uh, i just have down he equally uses the that sort of ambiguous language to describe the nazgul when the nazgul do things they're not it's it's not described perfectly it's not this is what the nazgul do it's they appear to where is it uh yeah, they are shapes, or like the shadows of shapes cast. Uh, it's very, it's just very like ambiguous. It's very imprecise in the way he describes the Nazgul. Uh, so like, yeah, so darkness being that veil of being unable to perceive, Tolkien takes it both in a good way, in, a, in an evil way, and in a non-evil way. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I've got. I don't know what to do with any of that. <laughs> I can look through my notes here to see if I ex expanded on any of that. Uh, yeah. 
Okay, cool. I heard yeah. it. We are, <laughs> and we are talking about like you know Tolkien literature right here. You know, Kingdom of Darkness from a biblical perspective is a completely like different like it. That's what we use to describe kind of evil in general. But yeah. in Tolkien's yeah. universe, again, this gives us. Sorry, go ahead. No, you're, no, you're fine. You can continue. That was just my. Well, in Tolkien's universe, I think you're maybe saying like darkness is. I don't know what we're saying. That darkness is like the the veil of no. something spiritual and unknown on the other side. <laughs> Sorry, kind of. Sorry, kind of. Maybe we'll just have to reread that paper until we. <laughs> the fear say, um, of the unknown. Yeah, I, I should say that darkness as defined by the presenter. So, mm -hmm. like, applying that idea of darkness to Tolkien's works. Not necessarily Tolkien's own use yeah. of the word darkness. I don't think he would describe yeah. it as darkness, but. No. Um, <laughs> So he's taking the HP uh, Lovecraft thing and trying to apply it to Lord of the Rings, essentially, which, is what I was getting. Yes, and I, I think it, I think he's almost redeeming it in a way. Yeah, so I, I agree. Before, how how can Lovecraft be redeemed? And I think this presentation <laughs> is a good start. Um, another thing he mentioned was negative theology. Uh, so one one way or apophatic, I think, is the term, um, where you only describe God and what he does through negative terminology. So instead of saying what he is, what he, the instead of using affirmative statements, you, tr you sort of create a fence using negative statements. Uh, and, and that is sort of, it's kind of like creating that veil between you and something good, which you can't really perceive perfectly, but you know it exists behind that veil and you know that it's good. Just like you know that the conversation between Gandalf and the elves is good, can't really perceive what is going on behind there um if that yeah if that makes any sense uh and one one idea or one way I've, I've had god described to me is that god is simultaneously a shining approachable light but it's also a deep deep abyss uh used a good phrase a mist or a darkness that sheds light, or something like that, with fragments of light coming from the abyss. So, like, there's nothing bad about God being a large abyss. Yeah. It's just, it, it, it's, it describes his indescribability. You don't have to fear the unknown. Um, the unknown are parts that you can accept um, is, is kind of like what I, how I read into those kind of like redeeming factors. Like, we can learn to accept these unknown factors. They, they, we know all of God's qualities that are shining through are good. We, we see those small amounts. We know that they're good. We know that Gandalf's good. We know that all these people are good. Um, so we can assume that their conversation is good, just as the glimpses of God that we can see th um, through this veil of darkness um, allows us to know that the rest of God is good. Is that, so, is that kind of like what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. That there's, you, you know that the reality of it is good, yeah. or likewise with something else, you know that the reality of it is evil, even though you cannot perceive it in its completeness yeah. um and i think i don't know i think applying those moments of that sort of thing happening in tolkien is really beautiful and once again i think the idea of redeeming lovecraftian <laughs> ideas is also kind of fascinating it's amazing uh, so that, that, that was that was my takeaway from it it's not complete I, I don't have any complete thoughts by any means but i thought it was fun it's a good start for sure <laughs> I think you've offered a bridge into the next session that we're going to talk about. So you guys talked about how, like, you know, he's trying to redeem Lovecraft or he's trying to 
take something he likes and kind of force it in where maybe it doesn't exactly belong. Um, like, so I've been taught this before. There are times in your lives as a pastor where something happens and it's such a good story. You want to tell it that upcoming Sunday in your message. And you're going to, even though you're preaching on a different theme, you're going to try to find a way to fit it in where it doesn't fit because you like it. You want to use it. You know, that's, it's not, always the right place to be using it you need to kind of save it cherish it allow it to grow until it's ready for where it does belong in a message so that's like a pastoral thing that that sometimes we wrestle with when we're writing sermons um the next session was called uh, um pop post talking and uh i love this what i yeah, what I liked about it is in the same way where H.G. Wells felt like maybe it didn't exactly fit in this conversation, but we were trying to make it fit, post-pop Tolkien was about, like, exegetical stuff. <laughs> like, So, like, the other thing pastors are taught is, like, not only don't put an analogy where it doesn't belong just because you want to use it, but, like, don't read the Bible with 21st century eyes. If you do that, you do it a disservice. It's not that you can't learn something about you know, something that's adequate and applicable to the 21st century. But this thing is an ancient document written a long time ago, trying to say other things than what we would perceive it saying if we read it with eyes from way down the road. And that's what I felt like a lot of this episode was, this session was about, was it felt like my ministry class is about exegetical use all over again. Don't take the Bible out of context. It doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means until you put it in context and, and try to get it. Whereas he was saying like people would take Tolkien out of context when it reached America, it took on a different kind of culture than it did in Britain. And like everyone was contextualizing it to their own space. Um, even there was a session later about like language as it's being translated into uh, what was the language? Uh, Puerto Rican, Guatemalan. Spanish. It was Spanish. Was it Spanish? Portuguese. Portuguese. I, Brazilian. I remember hearing Portuguese for some reason. Well, I think it got translated into a bunch, but like, yeah. you know, as it's being adapted to other cultures and languages or even trying to find the right words. And I'm like sitting in this, I'm like, man, this is just biblical theology. You know, like when we're writing in English, we're trying to go through the Bible, figure out what the right word is. And we do it a disservice sometimes. Other times we do it, uh, we do it good. And then other times people read their Bibles and completely pull something away that they weren't supposed to pull away. Something that even the writer itself or God himself would be like, whoa, that's not what I was teaching you, you know. Whereas people today with Tolkien would read it with today's mindset because that's where we live. You always contextualize. And you'd be like, oh, Tolkien felt that way about something. Huh? Oh, he thought that. Hmm, well, I can't believe that. You know, it's like he may have not have any idea what you're talking about. That wasn't his world that wasn't his time frame and like you know, he doesn't even know what an iphone is so like you gotta you gotta take in the context context so let's go ahead that conversation you can dive further deep well, into that if you want why didn't bilbo have a smartphone <laughs> silly dude could have just google searched where to go where's mordor frodo could have been like where's mordor you gotta get there Take an uh, Uber. Google. Yeah, where's Uber the fastest way? The ring that he gets from. Yeah, Google. right. Take a photo of the ring. Hey, what is? Posted on Reddit. Yeah, what's this what guy's? 
Yep. Someone's just like, dude, that's the ring of power. Like, throw that into Mount Doom right now. I don't know, man. I kind of want to keep it. Why should I I keep it? (laughs) This is not the route I was going with what I was setting this up for. It's (laughs) mine. One does not simply choose the route that it takes. What? Well, it merely wanders and gets lost. <laughs> so, at least within this, you know, I got into a few things. Biblical exegesis, it just felt like the same thing between Bible and Lord of the Rings, like learning how to convert it, which is the same thing with any translation. You know, Earthbound, the video game, when it was translated, you had to actually redo entire jokes because it wouldn't even make sense in English <laughs> due to idioms that we use. So, um, it... I thought it was a good look at it. I I didn't I don't remember hearing anything about Legolas being in the X Games, but that was like an example. Um, I remember there was also people talking about that for sure. So like Legolas like literally skateboarded down a like set of stairs. Like, oh, for yeah. sure Tolkien wouldn't have been like, oh yeah, and Legolas uses his shield as a as a skateboard, but now. Guess what, guys? Zelda does it. Even Link, like the Legend of Zelda, I should say, and then Link in the Legend of Zelda does it. He shield surfs. Why? I think it's because Legolas did it first. <laughs> well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Keep. To be fair, in the books, Legolas suddenly jumps up onto a mound of snow and starts frolicking across it without yeah. sinking, just because he can for some reason. So. It, I don't know. I think that's. I think the whole skateboarding thing is a little bit more in line with Legolas's character than. Yeah, <laughs> but People it would at least be reading about it though. Yeah, we would. We got really upset about it. I was cracking up in theaters, but I, I thought it was awesome. I, uh, <laughs> I, I was a kid. I was like, "Yeah, Legolas!" At least he wasn't. And at least jumping from falling rock. To oh falling. yeah. <laughs> don't get me started on that scene. Oh, uh, that hurts. But yeah, I mean, that would be like a 21st century re-envisioning. You know, we have this thing called skateboarding. What if we used it right here? Which is fine for the movie's sake, I would say. But, uh, you know, we're adding our culture into it, which is just generally what you do. Um, We talked about other places, though, where in his time he saw things misused. So like Gandalf's Garden, I think it was. Yeah. Which was kind of like a new agey type place where suddenly his characters were now promoting things that he was not meaning for it to to promote and now uh you know it's going a whole different route like i think of uh there's a statement i blindly made on january 6th when the insurrection happened where i was like what did i say i said we said this moment was coming and you 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 know you're like no it's not like it's here now you know and there was someone who's like a super super like trump (laughs) supporter who liked that statement and I realized my context had been changed. What I was saying was like, yeah, this brother. horrible thing is happening. This horrible thing is happening. We said it can't happen. And then somebody liked it from the other side, realized, making me realize my statement could also be taken as a war crime. We said we were coming and we did. You know, it's oh like, gosh. oh, man, no, that's not what I meant. So, like, Tolkien had this same thing with Gandalf's garden where it's like, that's not what I meant. Please don't take it this route. So you have these exegetical problems that will arise from mm-hmm. from doing stuff like this. I think so. and I think 
so I, don't, I, don't, I actually didn't watch the whole post-pop thing, so I don't know if they covered this uh, facet of uh, Tolkien, like pop culture surrounding around, popping up around Tolkien's time. But I think I remember Tolkien learning that some, like, people were making the One Ring. So think about today, you make a, you create something, it gets famous, if anybody makes any fan art, the, the creator will appreciate that, no matter what it is. Even, like, no matter what it is, whatever facet it is that you have created, if somebody replicates that, they're going to be happy about it. And then Tolkien, I imagine, you know, he was happy about certain things, uh, like, I don't know, uh, art of the geography or whatever. But he, when he learned that somebody recreated or made a replica of the One Ring with One Ring Palm, his immediate, his instinctual reaction was, "Don't do that! Did you not read the <laughs> books? It is, in, it is an inherently evil thing. Get rid of it! Like, don't, don't send it to me in fan mail. That is an evil thing." So I think that, I don't know. I, I think that speaks to, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, there's a lot there. I think. Yeah, Tyler, you want to show us your wedding ring? <laughs> oh yeah, it's the one ring to rule them all. Right? Okay. <laughs> and you're case it's okay tyler <laughs> <laughs> yeah so like i oh come on hey man look at me thank you uh so i r really like disagree with the, that kind of like thought and like statement because like what is the person using like if this was the actual one ring i get it like dude get rid of that thing why would you even want that but like what it can be symbolized as and as a reminder for uh, is completely different. Like, whenever I think about having the One Ring, I'm like, it's a reminder that, like, of all the things I'd done in my past that were a problem, all the temptations that I had, um, and how, like, I can, like, prevent that, right? How I can choose not to be consumed by the power um, that the ring possesses, right? Um, I can choose instead to... Um, instead to do good and to do right and to be Samwise Gamgee. <laughs> uh, and so I don't necessarily agree with uh, that idea that like that he, he like has this idea that the things that he's created, like if it's a symbol for bad, it automatically does bad in his world. And it's like, I don't know, man. I'm the same way though. Like Jamin would probably be more on the line of like, no, I kind of agree with that. That sentiment um, is what I feel like Jamin would be. That's my imitation of Jamin's voice, by the way. This is it right here. Uh, I so my imitation of my voice would respond. Uh, <laughs> it, it partially depends, I think, on what is the meaning behind it. Because when I watch Lord of the Rings, like when I see Frodo carry that ring, I'm always like. Oh man, I got that ring. <laughs> you know, like I, I wish I could get rid of that ring. I don't want that ring anymore. Uh, and it's heavy and it sucks. And like, there's been times where I've been watching the movies. Like I almost want to get one just like on a necklace under my shirt, just as a reminder to me, like Jamin, you don't have to carry this. You can get rid of this. And uh, that, that would be a good interpretation of it. Whereas the ring, if we were to be specific about what it represents, yeah, <laughs> it's ultimate evil and power over everything, you know? And so like, if you were making a ring for that reason, I think that's a completely, not that you can make a ring for that reason, but if you have the ring to yourself as like a memorial yeah. to like, I need power, <laughs> I, you know, that would be different. Whereas like, you know, there's other things though, like you wouldn't want people to copy. So like, 
there's things in his book where it's like, no, that's just bad regardless. So it's, yeah, it's not like everything can just be interpreted as a moral choice on behalf of the person who's holding it, but yeah. the ring would have a different symbolism based on who you are, I guess. Right. And I, and I think uh, that sort of reaction, it, my guess would be that it's unique to Tolkien considering how much he identified with his own story. I mean, he put the names of Baron Luthien on his gravestone, not for funsies, but because that was a piece of his identity. So I can imagine if anybody were to have that sort of like instinctual reaction of no, don't do that. It'd be Tolkien just considering how tight he is uh, to that world. Yeah. yeah. And we could jump to that one next since you mentioned it. Uh, there was a whole session about his gravestone. I was a little burnt out by this point in the day. So did anybody have anything they wanted to speak in that one? Or Yeah. Yes. You can go ahead first, Tyler. Would you like to go first, Tyler? Oh. No, you can go ahead. Okay. Um, I don't know. I just really appreciated that the whole, uh, like, making sure that Luthien was written below his wife's name on the gravestone. Like, again, it wasn't because it was a pet name. It was never a pet name. It was the story of the the whole legendarium, um, all of his works, was so close to him, was so part of his identity that it was necessary for him to write Luthien, who was inspired by his, his wife, um, to have Luthien inscribed on the grave. Uh, so I think... I don't know. I feel like that's not something we see that one's own creative... People, a lot of people are humble about the creative work. Uh, and like, like, oh, that's just something that I made. But like, I don't know. That it was so deep with Tolkien that he found it necessary to write Baron and Luthien on his gravestone. Um, yeah. That's one of my pieces on that. And then, I thought it was really interesting that it's described as a place of yeah. pilgrimage. Uh, that I've I've heard the works of Tolkien described as a tradi- as a tradition yeah. before, because uh, like you know in arguments of canonicity, what isn't isn't canon? Is the Silmarillion canon? Probably not. So we're going to call it a tradition. Uh, but to see that Tolkien tradition go into like real world routines is very interesting to me. Uh, that it's almost a ritualistic participation in I don't know yeah in the life and legacy of tolkien so I, I thought that was fascinating a bit odd but definitely fascinating so like for me i kind of go back to that that like uh i was going also gonna play off on the pilgrimage aspect of that that uh that one um because i i saw a lot of like the reasons why people were there um or like why it was like one of the most important stops on their um like their tolkien adventure through london or whatever or uh through england i should say um and one of the things that i thought about was like you know i've i want to go there too like that's one of my top destinations um for myself is to be able to go to his gravesite. Um, first of all, cause I think it's cool just to be able to, you know, go by the people that inspired you throughout your life. But I was thinking about how much like um, people in like the Catholic faith or in, um, in uh, the orthodoxy um, have uh, their, their saints. Um, 
Tolkien for me is kind of like that. Um, he's a, a person that I like look up to in, in my, my faith as well as um, in my, my way of just being a human. Um, so to be able to pay like respects to a man that even who never knew me, never even, you know, would have known me or had the chance to know me, um, just be able to pay respects to that man a little bit and just say like, thank you um, for putting in the work to save my soul, you know, uh, to, um, for putting in the work to, to give me um, a, a chance to really hear who God could be and not um, what the world was saying God was at the time. So I think that uh, for me, that aspect uh, really, really kind of drove home. Uh, so I kind of agreed with that, that traditional, like, it's a tradition, like all of the, the people who read Tolkien, whether it's uh, for the spiritual aspects uh, and the Christian aspects of his, his work or the Catholic aspects of his work, or if it's for the, um, the more human aspects of his work, um, I, I think the people that are drawn to Tolkien are drawn to him because he was being honest in his work. Um, he was being honest about who his characters were and uh, who he was through these characters by extension. And um, the ability to craft such a beautiful world around it, around these honest stories, um, I think that's what draws us in and draws us near and wants us to go and, and, and thank the man uh, in person, uh, the most we can do to thank him in person anymore, uh, and say like, hey, I, we really appreciate what you did. And I, I think to make that journey uh, is kind of symbolic of the the journey that he talks about in The Hobbit. You know, um, it, it's just like your your adventure. It's a journey. It's something that you 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 don't know the end of. You don't know the, what the experience will be like until you get there. And then was it really getting there or the journey to get there? That was the, the most, the best part of it. And um, so while there was a lot of statistics and stuff around it, and I thought that was interesting, uh, I, I think that the, it, it hit me more personally, like, yeah, this was a man that highly influenced my life and my, my the path I took in my life. So um, I definitely want to go there for sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 12 group trip. The first 12 Let's do it. Bit trip. <laughs> Twelve await pilgrimage. First pilgrimage. <laughs> pilgrimage to Tolkien's grave. <laughs> I mean, these are always the spots where you can get borderline into like a weird kind of like hero worship fandom type thing. But you know, again, it comes back to like we were talking with the ring. Like it's about purpose and what does this mean to you, and and so on and so forth. Like I've always. Uh, we have Tolkien and Lewis scholars, you know, like their proficiency is to study these mere men about their lives and whatnot, which is fun for any of us who like to read up on all of this, but it's always funny to me, Lewis, Lewis scholars, if you're an in-house scholar and this is like your proficiency, you actually usually end up studying in his old house. Like you're supposed to, you're kind of expected to, uh, rent it out for a few months and write books while you're there on him, which I'm always like, what is this? Like some weird kind of like got to channel, channel Lewis. Well, <laughs> yes, it's just, I know it's not like that. It's just, it's funny just how far we go sometimes to put ourselves in, in the shoes of, of the past, but uh, also very meaningful, you know, like one of my favorite things about Lewis and Tolkien and a few other people I'd never read anything from is like, they just sound like legends, you know, like they sound like a fairy yeah. tale. 
and the fact that they hung out together in a bar and <laughs> told each other stories like what is this the avengers <laughs> of like christian literature like <laughs> why why does this group exist and it just sounds made up and yet it, it's real and it it you know changed so many of our lives especially when you have people like tyler who part of the reason that he came around to jesus in general is because of a fantasy book that was written <laughs> by a guy who wasn't even writing anything explicitly christian but you could find it there you know there's there's always some interesting stuff in there uh we got a few more sessions that we'll talk briefly about since we're um going long but there was a session on thrice welcome the hobbit teaches hospitality i didn't understand this one at all it sounded kind of i got it did not watch that i got it uh it was it was cool i mean just like we see how like the British hospitality that kind of comes through and like the Christian hospitality that comes through um, for the characters throughout the series and how that kind of relates, um, especially in like the Hobbit, you see the dwarves coming in and um, everyone's being very courteous and the people that aren't being courteous are the evil people. Um, I don't think it really has anything to do with anything. Uh, I think they're just observing um, something that Tolkien did um, habitually, which is like, Evil people aren't courteous, and good people are courteous. That's about it. <laughs> yeah, I felt like what I was hearing was pretty basic. So, Alex, did you have anything else to add to that one? I didn't okay. watch that one, uh, so I don't have any. So vampires, vampires, they're actually good people because they are very courteous, and they always have to ask to get into your house, according to those rules, by the way. <laughs> That's uh, um May uh, I moving on. Uh, please enter. The, uh, no, no, you can't. Sorry. That's very good Hobbit hospitality of you, vampire. Come oh, yeah, on come in. on in. Um, I'll invite you into my house. <laughs> the next one got cut short, so I don't think we ever got to the punch of where we were headed uh, due to internet problems. Yeah. But uh, Tolkien's works in fantasy genre for young learners. Does anybody have anything on that to add? I or? wanted to hear it. I don't I don't think we ever got There's there. The next one. A whole one, lot of exposition, but nothing after. Yeah. Uh, the next one was the Ringo South Brazilian translations. Did you guys catch any of that one? I was. I ended up taking a break. I took a break during that. I had all these on throughout the day, and there were some that I caught on to more easily and others I didn't. This one I didn't catch on to super easy, but I referenced a little bit about, you know, dealing with the language as you're translating and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll do one quick one. Tabletop games of the 21st century inspired by the works of Tolkien. There's a lot of them, first off, apparently. Love that it. guy's been collecting them forever. Me and Tyler have been playing the only one it seems he hasn't played, which is Journeys Through Middle Earth, and it is it's, amazing. It's and fantastic. We're playing normal mode, and it is incredibly hard. Like We are always on the last move to beat the level, and then we get killed. Like Always. It is always that close. And so if anyone's looking for a fun game to play, that one's fun. I also did buy the same company made a virtual card game it would be a pain to play in real life i think that's why it's virtual uh but it is it's fun it's 20 bucks and i've been messing around with that the last week it's it's uh decent i hear it compared to hearthstone a lot i haven't played that but apparently it's similar to that 
But then I looked up, they had the other one, the living card game, mm-hmm. which I, I hadn't heard of that genre until now. I went to their store just to see <laughs> what it's like. And I'm like, Jamin, don't even get involved in that. <laughs> every expansion is 30 bucks and every card collector's pack is 15. And there are like easily over a hundred of all those things. I was like, no, Jamin. No, you can't afford it. Don't even look further. But I was I was intrigued by the living card game. That's a lot. That's yeah. just why would you do that? I mean, that sounds fun if you're doing it while it's coming yeah. out. But like, well, yeah, it'd be like Pokemon. Oh, you're always collecting, but this one would just be like way too expensive. Well, it's. That reminds me of uh, what is it? Uh, something of the Five Rings, Lord of the Five Rings. Um, oh, it's a it's a living uh, card game as well. Um, but uh, it it's like a like war kind of strategy. It might be very similar. It might be where they got oh, Legend of the Five Rings. That's the that's the one. Uh, it reminds me. I think it reminds me of a lot of that. Uh, but Legend of the Five Rings had really cool. Like you'd go to. Uh, these tournaments and the tournaments would decide the story for the next uh, the next pack that came out um, so like these tribes were the, the like you played a deck with a certain like tribe or group and faction and if that faction beat out another separate different faction that would take place in the story so you like lived out and everyone who was there um, contributed to that fight so if that was the case and they had like conventions of like you like changing how the things happen in middle earth throughout the ages, I'd be like, I'd be pretty hype. I, I might go to those. <laughs> yeah. I think this one just yeah. takes you through the book by putting out like chapter by chapter or something. Either way, I was very intrigued, but not financially stable enough to get into that. <laughs> and then the only one, that we didn't get into was talking trauma with Tolkien in the 21st century. Do you guys want to speak into that one at all? I got halfway, I started halfway into it and I was really excited about the concepts he was talking about, but I felt terrible that I did not watch the whole thing. This was uh, when I ended up kind of tuning out as I was going through. So Tyler. Yeah, I, I will be honest, I didn't really get much into it. I was watching it, but I didn't really catch anything from it. Um, I I just know that, like, I don't know. I just, I, I think it's a hard topic within Tolkien by itself to talk about because obviously Tolkien is not living out his trauma in these. He is running away from that trauma as much as possible uh, with these books, in my opinion. Um so it's hard to talk about the characters going through trauma because he doesn't describe it because he doesn't want to relive his trauma. Um, so I don't know. I didn't get that from what they were talking about, so I'm not totally sure if I necessarily agreed with it. Maybe that's why I was tuning it out. But Yeah, well, I think that's something interesting with Lewis, too, is he was in the war, same war, and he writes the war. nothing, nothing yeah. about it. There's nothing. Like, it's just other than the mention of having gone there, you know, there's war in his, in his books in, in Narnia, but like, as far as like his own experience, we learn about that from other biographical authors trying to find what details they can, and they can hardly find anything about it. So it seems like Tolkien was in a similar 
direction. Uh, the movie Tolkien, uh, which is about his him and his wife, which I'm not sure how much of that movie was made up since like I I saw it live and then Colbert interviewed them after and like like he was like you know how much did you know about his wife and whatnot they're like oh it seemed like they said very little i'm like i just watched a whole movie about someone you don't even know like we wanted her personality to be i'm like you don't know that her personality was like that like great what did i watch was this real fake you know whatever but it was still a good movie it was enjoyable i don't know how historically accurate it is um but like in that movie they have flashbacks to him in the war and like you see the enemy when they're running by suddenly you are in Mordor you know and it seems like there's Nazgul and all these things and then there's a random cross in the middle of it that came out of nowhere I don't know either way they they seem to in that movie try to say like look at his trauma and see how it's inspiring Lord of the Rings as it goes along but I don't know how accurate that was so uh, <laughs> I guess all all of our lives have been, we're not tabula rosa right we're not blank canvases yeah. so our lives are going to subliminally or intentionally write into our narratives but yeah as Tyler said was it intentional that he was going through his trauma I don't know uh, Alec yeah so like I, I, I can't speak for if he was trying to like if what he wrote like with Frodo's trauma I just finished Return of the King and it's I think he paints a really, really good picture on what it is like to experience trauma. As somebody who doesn't experience like the effects of trauma, that's what it seemed to me. It seemed very real to me. It didn't seem like a, this is somebody experiencing fantasy trauma. It didn't seem like fantasy trauma to me. It, it seemed like Frodo is dealing with something terrible. You feel like everything should be fine now that everything is said and done, but with Frodo it's not. He's haunted by nightmares which I'm told is a common effect of oh, yeah. trauma. PTSD. Um, yeah. And like yeah. the, the whole, like, I should, I should be better. I should, I should be better by now. Everything's fine. Sauron's defeated, but I'm not getting better. I'm not getting better, Sam. So I think he painted a good, I don't, I don't know if that was his way of inserting his own trauma into it, but I think he did uh, paint a pretty good picture yeah. of it. Um, I like, so there's that personal trauma. I remember him talking about terrestrial trauma, like trauma of the land and how he, manifested that in his books via the Ents, which are imagine if the earth could speak uh, about its trauma we have the Ents for that i thought that was really cool um it is talk with terrestrial trauma and the marring of the earth uh in the same way that and how it relates to personal trauma and the same way that personal trauma really cannot be truly fully healed terrestrial trauma is the same way he also talked about narrative trauma i do not remember what he said about it but pretty sure that was cool <laughs> um and I, and I think so i think uh again only catching the tail end of that one i think a really good takeaway of that really good christian themed takeaway of that is that in the end frodo had to sail west bilbo had to sail west every every one of the mm -hmm. ring bears eventually it's not in the books it might be in the appendix i haven't read the appendix of the return king but sam eventually has to sail west and leave everything because the only true i don't even think they say that it heals them fully it's the only option for them, for their trauma, is to sail west, which, if we were to make this allegorical, Tolkien was against allegory, but he was not against applicability. If we were to apply that concept to, you know, 
Christian theology, the only really true way to, again, not heal fully your trauma, but the only thing to subject your trauma to is to sail west, to orient yourself uh, towards what is highest and noblest and godly. So I think that was my biggest takeaway from that, is that the, the only answer was sailing west. Not for the answer that you think, not for re-completing yourself, not for removing the trauma, but for the 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 good that is supposed to come about it, the redemption of that trauma. So that was my takeaway from catching the half and tail end of that section. Yeah. Yeah, and I I would imagine that to some extent he is using his own drama or trauma if if that's Frodo's reaction in the end of the books, you know, like that's not a normal thing to think that you would just write in as a happy ending that someone's got nightmares and just never feels right. So I imagine there's like Frodo, I've seen what you've seen. It's, it's not always like it, it doesn't work out like everyone else does. So there's a possibility. I would say that try to be there. Likewise, there's almost like lessons that, he's learned that seemed to go against, you know, like, cause at that point he also has um, Saruman come up and rather than just more violence, perpetuating violence, he's no, let him live. He was a great man once. And maybe, you know, who knows, you know, like that, that goes against like his own, you know, like he's been to war, like forgiveness is not usually where war leads to. And that's where his book goes instead. And I guess full circle back to the video games. I think the video games are supposed to be after everything's happened. I think they're, I think they're after. Maybe I'm wrong. That's what I thought they said in the synopsis I watched. Maybe I'm wrong. Prior. Do the Rings of Power still exist? Uh, it does when you're playing as the one guy, but you're you're playing as him before when he made the ring, he's got the ring of power. Okay. I don't know if it's after though, then I guess like the story they paint is very different of just like more violence, perpetuating more violence, perpetuating more conquering, which is the whole Walter Wink theology of the domination system. Satan or Sor Sauron just continues to use this and continues to perpetuate himself in existence until we find a different way recognizing Jesus showed us another way is possible and heaven works in different ways, which has its own way of installing its own kingship, you know? And I think, uh, I think that, you know, if Frodo showing, seeing the different way possible in the end, and then those games, if they are after just perpetuating the old system, again, ignores the rules of the universe. So anyway, all that being said, that brings us, we've gone through all the sessions, and I believe yeah. the whole thing's staying on YouTube, so you can watch it for yourself. Uh, you can go to TolkienSociety.org to even take a look through uh, the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 sessions we just covered, and go a little deeper in each one if, if that would help you. They've got a YouTube channel, Tolkien Society, where you can probably watch it already if they just hit post right after so anything else you guys want to cover before we go uh read the lord of the rings i am read it right all. now i finally oh. finished it three years after reading the silmarillion <laughs> i i audiobooked the whole thing 
love the first book and by book two there were so many character names and so many place names if you don't read those i don't think they stick because it's like even in the movies i don't remember what's what because it's a language that is made up you know like you're like what where, where am I? You know, like the only names that I remember are your main characters. And I feel like and you find yourself flipping to the map so much just so you can like, all right, where were we again sort of thing? And you can't do that with yep. an audiobook. I can only imagine how frustrating that would be. Yeah. And that geography but, there is. Here you go. I've been going to the book exchange in Jackson. It's all used books for like four bucks. I buy anything that's Tolkien and Lewis just to have a shelf of Tolkien and Lewis. <laughs> I got this last week. Shaping of Middle Earth. Uh, yeah, this last week. Middle Earth. Shaping of Middle Earth, which is apparently just a dictionary. <laughs> I have. <laughs> or maybe this isn't the one. This isn't the one. I have another one over there. That's literally just like twice the size, basically a dictionary of of what is going on in Lord of the Rings. I'm like, do I need this just to read a book? How did this ever catch on? <laughs> you guys ever want to read the history of Middle Earth? I have the first five. Oh volumes, my gosh. And I think this is the one that you have, Jamin. Uh, shaping of Middle Earth. Uh, shaping it. Yeah. 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 I've got a few of them now, a few different copies of different things. I've got the return of the King, which has a library card in it from a high school. So someone just didn't return and then eventually sold it off. I, I don't know. Either way. <laughs> Uh, either way, I'm just collecting them for fun at this point. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. So I love it. I guess my final note regarding Tolkien in general would be, so like there's this and there's seven more volumes and there's a couple of other books. I think the Christian tradition, you know, being able to lay claim to the works of Tolkien, lay claim, I think they have an advantage because we don't have as, as much uh, resources that we know more about the creative process of Tolkien than any author. And I think that's a fact just yeah. considering this, the seven more. So I think the like Christians have a bit of an advantage to work with, uh, with, you know, having access to a Christian and that much uh, of his writing process and his creative process. And the, the product of which has permeated global culture, no less. So I think that's something that's definitely worth exploring. Uh, in the realm of Christianity and literature and entertainment, uh, just given that there's so much to Tolkien, yeah. there's so much. He has touched so many people in so many different ways. It's it's a wonderful thing. Tyler, any final notes from you, or are you exiting with your uh, phrase of the day? Uh, well, I guess some final notes on Tolkien would be to um, to not let the the older language uh, scare you. Uh, when you get into it, if you want to start reading it. Um, I know a lot of people get thrown off by it and won't like make the little bit of extra effort to read it. Um, it's really worth it, though. You get used to it. You learn how to like understand what he's saying. And even if you don't, just skip the part that you don't know. Um, you can come back to it later. You'll probably want to come back to it later. So um, you just get into it. Just have fun with it. Let it be something that you take a ride with because it, it is... Uh, if you let it be, it can be life-changing.